Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Future in Review podcast. My name is Barrett Anderson. I'm the COO of Future in Review, and I'm here with our CEO, Mark Anderson. Uh, we are related. Yes, it is true. Um, I got all my good looks from him. But we're here today to talk about uh, the future of the hybrid work environment, chips, and also international economic capital flows, which was the subject of the our latest strategic news service global report. And uh, this this week, Mark will be interviewing me as the report is was written by me. So I'm going to turn it over to Mark, and you can ask some questions. Thank you, Barrett. Um, first question is a, one of my favorites whenever I look at the world economy. Um, we always use pattern recognition to figure things out. And you've been looking at manufacturing and FDI or foreign direct investment. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm trying to understand it, I think, in terms of technology driving the economy and also probably geopolitics. What do you see? Well, so a couple of things. It's we are at this interesting moment where the international finance world seems to have realized that China is not a safe place for their capital. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, in July, we had $9.8 billion of outflow from emerging markets. And six of that was China related. Right. Was at, so that's a huge vacuum of exodus of, of money that necessarily wants to go somewhere new to start growing to continue you know making money right new and safer exactly there's so they're, they're just looking for a home mm -hmm. um and i think you know the other thing that i've that we've seen so I, I was at um fortune uh brainstorm a few months ago and the ceo of flex was there uh, which is the third largest manufacturing company in the world. They handle in, you know, outsourcing. Uh, they handle supply chain management for a lot of large companies. At that point, she said 80% of her business was onshoring or reshoring, right? That's a stunning number. It's huge. Yeah, that's the biggest number I've heard yet. And so, you know, when you're, when all of your, we you have all of these companies that suddenly have to, figure out how do I exist? I have for the last 15 years, 20 years, relied on China to be my plug and play partner for manufacturing. And suddenly China, I think has made many foibles around uh, that, that process or, or like the manufacturing in, in general, including like supply chain delays, uh, their inability you know, to guarantee a company's security or IP within its borders um, to the extent that I think we have reached this interesting influx where companies worldwide understand that China is not a safe manufacturing hub for them any longer and they're and they're moving back. Totally true. So and they have to figure out what that looks like now. Yes. Uh, in between these two words, manufacturing and FDI or foreign direct investment, we should distinguish between them too because the issues of a company facing supply chain reshoring or friend shoring are important. And you just mentioned Flex's numbers. Um, foreign direct investment is a bit different. 
And right. so you might, it might be a subclass of, manufacturing might be a subclass of that because you, you're making it for indirect investment if you build a plant in China. Mm-hmm. But um, you're, you're just as likely you're investing as an investor, Wall Street investing. Right. Goldman Sachs, the, the playboy of all time when it comes to loving China, uh, probably in a very precarious position right now. So um, um, this idea, and I'm only bringing this up because we saw, instead of retrenchment, what you're describing right now, a large retrenchment going backwards where money's flowing out, China has become more and more desperate for FDI over the last five years, I would say. And they've been making very obvious moves to get hard currency into China from America and mm-hmm. from the West. So different project for them than just saying more manufacturing. Right. Desperately needed our cash. Including, including you know, trying trying to force all of their major companies to list on, on the stock exchange in Beijing. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of interesting plays back and forth about foreign direct investment and they seem to be losing on every front right now. Mm-hmm. And I think, the, I mean, that clearly they are the numbers, yeah. the numbers don't lie. Right. Right. Um, okay. So if we jump from there, um, you've talked about need-based hybrid work. What is that? So I think, you know, the, when we think about the future of work, currently we are thinking about it in, in really this binary way where it's either we go back to work or we don't go back to work. Mm-hmm. And a lot of companies, I think you're seeing a, a, a little bit of a divergence there where companies are trying to figure out what do we do? How do we increase productivity? Is there lost productivity from people working remotely? Uh, probably yes. And how much? And what is that, you know, what is the trade-off between being able to recruit top talent that wants to work remotely uh, and like recruiting talent that can work in person? And so when I say, when I when I use the term hybrid remote work, I think what what I'm really saying is that the most successful companies, I think, will make their remote work policies need dependent, right? So if you can be a project manager and work equally uh, well with your remote team of web developers who never wanted to come into the office anyways, uh, remotely, great. But there's a whole sector in the US economy that uh, we haven't quite touched on yet that is going to, that necessitates a very strong need to co-locate for work. So I'm talking about specifically renewable energy and energy technology, uh, the installation and creation and, and development of all of those things. I'm talking about uh, the bioeconomy, uh, which, you know, as I wrote about in this last week's report, Eric Schmidt is pushing very heavily. But we've also heard from folks like uh, George Church at FIRE, who is really interested in, you know, what are the genetic, what are the materials that we can create using what we know now about genetics and CRISPR that could help relieve some of our reliance on fossil fuel related materials. So there's, that's a whole burgeoning economy um, that is, we're starting to see develop. And then chips is the other part of that, right? So the most important piece of, of the tech industry right now, the thing that everyone needs in every single product, mm-hmm. the, thing, the reason you can't get your washing machine, you know, for another 12 months, mm-hmm. like that's 
all of those all of those sectors I think we're going to see explode. Um, I think they will become a natural home for some of that capital that's fleeing direct, you know, fleeing China, fleeing um, the U. The government is putting a bunch of money into chips. They just passed a giant chips bill last week, um, and I think we're going to see that bill also fund some of the bioeconomy stuff, um, and that's going to drive a lot of you know, those are three industries that we're going to see grow a lot in the next couple of years, and they all require people to be in person. In person. Um, our, our friend Elon got into a little trouble on Twitter over this, um, as you may know, uh, when he said to his employees, if you're working for SpaceX, you're going to be working for me here in SpaceX. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, you're fired. He yeah. Said. So, um, of course, when you're manufacturing rockets or when you're manufacturing and designing and or manufacturing cars. Yeah, all of these kind of have to be there. Yeah, right. You really need do need to be there. Yeah. It's surprising that some people want to argue about that, but I guess they do, you know. But anyway, uh, it makes sense that if you're manufacturing things, you have to be there to manufacture them. Mm -hmm. Mostly. Yeah. 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 Not everyone. And Not everyone. But, but but those I I you know, one of the predictions that I made in the global report is that given all of those industries are extremely, um, require a lot of land mass, right? And mm -hmm. so if you're looking at migration patterns of, of humans over the last two years during the pandemic, there was a lot of, within the US specifically, people went to low tax or no tax states, right? So high, you know, a lot of knowledge workers moved to Texas or Florida or Arizona places where they didn't have to pay taxes. And a lot of those people are, you know, highly competitive talent that companies are trying to recruit. The problem is that all of those industries that I just mentioned require way more land mass and will be concentrated in the Midwest primarily. So I think we're on the cusp of this very interesting development in, in literally the, the construction of the United States where everyone had vanished from the Midwest to go to places like Silicon Valley now they've like dispersed a bit more, but not into the places where their talent is actually going to be needed or required in the next 10 years. And so there's going to be this very interesting, uh, you know, how do we like companies are going to be desperate to get those high, you know, impact high tech workers to their locations, which are not necessarily desirable locations by necessity, right, because they need more space for those things. So I think that there's a lot of nuance to what you're saying, probably segmentation, where there are some category, for instance, programmers can kind of be wherever they want to in a way. There's some people who think they have to be at the headquarters, you know, Microsoft's at halftime or something, but um, th that's a less pressured thing than manufacturing. Right. Uh, now that person could just stay in Tucumcari or wherever they're from and just stay there. The, the, the pressure there is you don't have to move from where your parents live, basically. Mm -hmm. A lot of folks live within 30 miles of their parents still. So there's that idea. And then there's the idea that you're describing where they go somewhere different from what where they would have gone before because either of taxes or because companies themselves are moving. Mm -hmm. An awful lot of, as Elon again can tell you, he's had it with California. Mm -hmm. I, we're all just counting the seconds until he moves Tesla as well as SpaceX out of Fremont and out of California. So there are a lot of companies leaving California, a lot of people who are individuals who are leaving California. So that I think that fits what you're just, the, the thing you just described. And so we, maybe we have layers of um, finesse in terms of who's moving where. Um, and in terms of the move to the Midwest that you're describing, do you think that, are these gonna be com whole companies 
Intel with their Ohio plant? Or are they going to be mostly individuals who are fleeing Silicon Valley because of taxes? Or what do no, you? No, no. I think I think it's going to be a combination. So so it's going to be companies, right? So if you're Intel, Intel is you know they have two chip fabs that are that are already in process. They should be finished by 2025. So it's not going to be instant, but it will happen pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. There's space there for eight more chip fabs, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. We as a society are not going to need, unfortunately, fewer chips in the next few years. Probably right. Right. we're going to we're going to continue to need probably more and more all the time. Um, that's going to be, you know, we also need to. We are in a position where we need to make this very rapid transition to renewable energy, or we're totally fucked. Mm-hmm. And so I think that is starting to happen. People still don't really understand that. There's still not quite enough political will, but that's going to happen. There will be construction of massive wind farms. There will be distribution of, you know, pa- you know, creation of solar panels. We have to re-onshore the entire solar panel production industry, which was, by the way, exported to China. But we, which we had until China destroyed the entire global industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The White House, for some reason, is still making noises about like working with China on solar panel production. Because they're being lobbied by American companies. Yeah, but you know, you want to buy cheap panels? Not a, not a good idea. No. If, no. if we've learned anything in the last two years, it's don't make something that your economy is extremely dependent on. Yeah. Only acquirable from China. Well, we There's might. Never- we might make yeah. a. SNS, we might make a list of those. There are two kinds of people in the world who are CEOs those who are lobbying for China in the White House and those who are lobbying for America. Mm. Very interesting difference. Yep. And we're Apple and Boeing fall. <laughs> so, okay, um, think about wages with us for a minute um, and, and politics. I mean, how, how does this play out on a more individual basis? So, I think. You know, as you know, in my past life, I was an information warfare expert. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the things that drove a lot of political polarity and the ability for information warfare to be very effective in de- dividing American politics is the fact that all of the young, a large portion of young people, college educated adults who were living in these rural communities moved out of them, right? And therefore, there was very little, and there is still today, very little day-to-day interaction between people who think differently than each other, right? So normally in, in the old days, you go to a baseball game with them, to your kid's baseball game, right? You're watching the kid's baseball game. You're making friends with the guy who, you know, you're a Democrat, they're a Republican or vice versa, but you have some kind of like personal connection to them. And so even if you think that their politics are stupid and awful and you hate everything that they believe in, you still respect him because he's a good dad and like he, you know, he brought the fruit snacks to the thing and, you know, and so those connections were lost when, you know, partially because of the exodus into the tech industry, into cities and coastal cities, a lot of those connections were lost. And I think that exacerbated the political polarity and the ease of which Russia was able to manipulate Americans into hating each other, right? Uh, This, what we're talking about is actually a reversal of that process. So it's going to put more people who think differently from each other, who are both Americans, uh, back in the same spaces. And I think people are very hungry for, you know, they're tired of being angry at each other. My sense is that, you know, there's still some people that will never, but, but in general, we're all tired of like feeling like everyone hates each other. 
no one it's not a fun place to be like no one likes it everyone that I talk to in any space is like yeah but I kind of miss you why are you guys so mean to me you know like you hear this back and forth a lot it's like I don't like this whether it's you know someone calling it's there's a hunger to to get over that polarity is there an age differential in what you're saying in other words you're fairly young is my my point of view Mm -hmm. um are young people more likely to feel what you're saying than older people? I think older people are more likely to feel it, actually. Do you want to get along? Uh, yeah, because, you know, I think, well, so, yeah. Okay. Because they, because they know what it was like before. Mm-hmm. They right. have that memory of what it was like before pe- there was this intense political polarity. I hear more the- <laughs> from people over 50 mm-hmm. that want to fix that. I think a lot of younger younger people don't know what it was like before that, you know, there was an internet. Yeah. Yeah. So they've never, they've never grown up without an internet. They don't know how will be anything different. How much hate they got from the internet. Yeah. Or what, you know, like I, I think about this all the time. I grew up mostly without internet and then I got it at the very end and I like, thank God that I did not grow up on Instagram and, and, you know, like just looking at uh, people, pictures of beautiful girls posing in weird duck face all the time. And that wasn't my primary source mm-hmm. of like who I should become. Mm-hmm. So I think older people are more likely actually to, to remember that and, and want to go back to that. So to weave all this back into a circle somehow, um, you're looking at the movement of money, mm-hmm. look at the movement of supply chain, mm-hmm. look at the movement of people. And so when you look, say, five years forward from now, um, I, I think what you're saying is China suffers, the Midwest benefits, um, people's lives change, companies are different. Can you wrap that all into kind of one paragraph? Yeah, the nut of it is the Midwest is going to be a lot more economically successful. It's the new, the new future of America is actually in the Midwest instead of on the cities for some which is a new thing. And that's going to drive wages up in those areas. It's going to be a big source of economic development in those areas. Uh, we're not going back to China. That's the to sum it up. That's a good paragraph. <laughs> well, thank you, Brett. I think these are uh, smart ideas, good ideas, true ideas, and uh, probably different from what people have heard so far. Very well. If you would like to read more about them, you can become a member of Strategic News Service. Uh, the first month of membership is free, so you won't get charged until the second month. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just have to sign up at stratnews.com. Stratnews.com. Okay. Thank you very much. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Bye-bye.